0: Hey, I'm Kyle Oki. And I'm Jason Hansen. And you are listening to the Agronomous Happy Hour podcast. Rock and roll.
1: That's why they drink vodka over there.
2: <laughs> You're better off spraying the vodka on those last words. <laughs> <40 laughs> <seconds.
0: laughs> Drought is no fun to endure. It's the it's... devil's right hand. <laughs> Oh no, that's beer. Hey everybody, welcome back. You are listening to the Agronomist Happy Hour. We are going all the way down to the Mississippi Delta to go talk to our friend, Greg Flint. Now, Greg is the director of the Mississippi Crop Improvement Association. And many of you, if you're on Twitter and on Bridget Riedel's Nooner, Probably know Greg from that. We had a lot of fun with Greg in this conversation, and we talked to him about things like rice, cotton, and sweet potatoes. And there's a lot of other things, too, like beer choices, places to eat, things to see, all that. But enough of me rambling. Let's get to the conversation. I just get too tied into a conversation. love listening to you know everyone talk about agriculture and their side of the world. It's always so much fun. Yeah.
2: And that's that's the reason I like doing what I do with Brook Bridget because I even if I sit there and listen I just that's I'm I'm so interested in Midwest Ag and Northern Ag and, you know I've seen Mississippi and Southern Ag I'm alive I want to hear about sugar beets you don't know, want to hear about you know canola I want I want to see something else
0: well it's like the flip side of us we want to know about cotton and rice see? and sweet potatoes and-
2: it's all the same we're it's, it's we're all rotating information <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I've not stepped foot
1: in, uh, well, I've been by cotton, uh, for sure in, uh, Texas and I've been to Mississippi, but a lot of it is you're flying into some place and you see it harvest going on or things like that, where you're not, you don't get to go down and, and talk to people and be immersed in it and just kind of get the scope of everything that happens. And Twitter provides some of that, I guess you can kind of get into some of those conversations and it, it is fascinating when things are different because yeah. you'd say, well, why, why would, why would they do that? Why, how come they're not doing this? <laughs> yeah,
2: Cause I don't know any better. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm same. Same with me. If I go up there, it's the same thing. You know, you know, I, I grew up, my backyard was a cotton field. So my dad lost me in a cotton field when I was four. So, you know, I've, <laughs> I've, I've been in cotton all my life. <laughs> You've been lost ever since. <laughs> yep. <laughs> And and, and I laugh and and and, and I'm just just to explain how different it was when I was for as compared to now. Cotton is totally different than when in 1978 than it than it even was in 2000. Cotton in 1978 we didn't have plant growth regulators, so that cotton plant may have stood ten foot tall, and I'm walking under trees. Now we have what we call you know plant growth regulators, which those pretty much started coming into use in. Around 1982 that's when we started seeing picks so we started we started making that plant forcing that plant to squat and to bush out and to load up not to spend so much time on leaves and stems but more time on on squares and blooms and on the product we want and I, I don't know let me let me uh, I guess I to explain do y'all know what a square is
1: uh, we're about like the yeah <laughs> a is, is, is that like four square meals a day <laughs> <laughs> i've heard enough to know that it's
2: something that it's uh it's different and that's about it well it's actually not even a square it's a triangle <laughs> with three leaves on each on one on each side that's where the bloom is inside there that's where that's where the cotton comes from the bowl is in there it's got a, of course bloom and and the bowl is developing under that bloom. Okay, what is so, a, so?
0: First, it's a square, and then yeah, the, the bloom yeah. and
2: everything's underneath that. The, the bloom is inside there, oh, inside that. Okay, yeah. So you get a yellow bloom, and within three days, that bloom falls off, and you got a small little little small bowl that starts developing, and that's where the cotton is inside that bowl.
0: So there's another but cotton we, terminology that I've heard before. What, they, uh, like a, like a number, so many lock bowl or four lock bowl or is that some I- Oh yeah.
2: yeah. I mean, well we usually have uh like a, a four lock bowl so you know we, if you find a five lock bowl, you know people are going to take pictures of it. Hey, I found a five lock bowl. It's kind of it's I've found plenty of five lock bowls, but it's not it's not super but I walked I walked a lot of cotton so you're going to eventually find something that's got more than four. but those locks each lock is is uh, is has the fiber inside so it opens oh, okay. up when it when it starts drying out that bowl will open up and that cotton puffs out
0: so it's almost like the the peas in a pod or beans in a pod kind yeah, of yeah, idea
2: yeah yeah when it starts drying down that, pot, that bowl pops open and we force it and we can force it to open earlier with uh harvest days so we can get out there early say if you planted your cotton too late and you wanted to force it to get on out before november you don't want to i, I don't really want to pick a cotton in november which i have i've actually picked cotton in february because i couldn't get it in october but so we can we can force that plant to to start opening those bowls earlier so is your, is your november wet yes okay. can be can be. is yeah. there a month not that's not wet cold, in mississippi uh, well this spring has been pretty wet you know every Tuesday we were having a thunderstorm up through March and first to April but it looks like we're fixing to have a little dry spell we're, they're talking about a little bit of rain tomorrow uh, and I think it's fixing to shut off last year was fairly wet but this year I'm I'm expecting it to the rain to shut off on us that's just that's what happens hmm. so we're definitely going to have irrigated and non and non-irrigated crops this year last year we had irrigated and non-irrigated but we had plenty of water to make the non-irrigated you know what i'm saying right Hmm. i remember going uh
1: this is back where i used to work we had a training and it was going to be in tunica mississippi yeah and uh it was uh the year we were supposed to go down is when katrina hit and so yeah so they moved everybody up and to get out of New Orleans and surrounding areas, and they they filled up all the hotels and things that were in Tunica, and we went down there, and uh, they fly us down. I think we got into Memphis, and then we we bust out and uh, got out there that that day. And I think it had rained like three or four inches of rain, and the next day was, I mean, it felt like we stepped off that bus and onto the center of the sun. The humidity yeah. just yeah. slapped us like you got beat with <laughs> yeah. a baseball yeah. bat, and it was yeah. like, oh my! It was the humidity was so high and the heat, and then there, of course there was free water sitting around and everything, and we we're going yeah. out to this this plot, and and they told us, okay, well, see those those plots over there is like fire ant piles. You do not step into those yeah. at all. Yeah, yeah, it's we like had fire ants to work. So it was yeah. it was like something totally different uh, from what we are used to, but,
2: uh, I was in in Tunica last week. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I go several times a year. I have a seed company right up there.
1: And it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was interesting because, uh, you see, well, you just see different, uh, differences in not only maturities, but how climate can really do things to plants. And that was, uh, it was a great, it was a great experience to go down there and, and take that. What oh, were you looking at? Uh, it was it was primarily uh soybeans and corn. Uh, yeah. and uh, and then different oh, traits. So yep, different traits, um, different characteristics. Uh, it was it was a training to kind of get prepared for some of that stuff and yeah. there might have been some alfalfa in there as well. There so, we have a little bit of alfalfa
2: in the state. One thing I gotta
0: know to kind of like frame my uh, or to ground myself, I guess, in the maturity zone is what day length corn, what what group maturity soybeans? I think, I think everyone else listening would appreciate to know that because I know
2: it's much well, that's, different. That's the most common question that I want to ask y'all. I mean, you know, down down here the earliest the earliest maturity group that we plant, we have some guys that might touch on three point eights, three point nines is kind of rare, but it's usually gonna be from four and a half to five and a half. Unless you get to close to the coast, and there's some guys down there that will plant sixes to six and a halfs. So we got we got two really good distinct regions in Mississippi. You got the eastern half, which is considered you know the Black Belt Prairie up to Tennessee line. They they plant a lot of fives to five and a Four point eight is probably as early as they're going to go. The Delta, they're going to stay somewhere between four and a half to five two. That's in, that's in Tunica. Those guys, they're they're planting four, five, and four eight to five. If they rarely they'll plant a five zero, but it's mainly those late fours and corn. You got anything from ninety to one hundred and twenty?
0: Oh, even as short or, as ninety days.
2: Yeah, yeah, we've had, we've had ninety. Okay, but most of it's going to hit around one hundred eighteen to one hundred twenty somewhere around there.
0: I don't even know if we could have a season as long as one hundred and twenty days. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I know no. our seasons. It's not not the corn season, anyways. But I mean, we have 120 days in our growing season. But
2: right, you wouldn't finish it, though.
0: No, I, I just <laughs> I'm. I was hearing, you know, from the mid group fours all the way to a group six that I didn't know yeah. beans went to a group six. We'll probably enlighten you on how early the groups. Sure. Well, out. I would say
2: let's, let's say this. When you get to when you get to a group six to a and we've got some group eights, but those are forage beans. Those leaves we got those leaves are huge. And when you get to a maturity group that late, you're you're wanting more foliage. You're you get you're grazing that. You're 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 silaging or something with that because you're that's a, just a longer season. So you got bigger bigger leaves. You got more foliage than you do pods. Just a different way of thinking when you get that high here. Sure. Sure, I've got a cup. I've got one seed grower that will plant. Uh, he's but he does uh, wildlife seed mixes, so he's got a six and a half up to an eight. Sure, And, and for a g- wildlife plot, it makes total sense, right? Oh yeah, yeah. It's, it's they're beautiful too, and the leaves, the trifolias are just massive. And one of them is round ready. It's a round at one. Huh. Um, huh. Thing. <laughs> very interesting. Yeah our
0: our maturities. Uh, you want to tackle that, Jason?
1: <laughs> so uh we will uh i have a lot of double zero yeah figured soybeans and, and we'll go down to in my immediate area probably down to like an oh three at the latest uh we'll we'll find some triple zeros if we get into a, a hail situation where you're going to plant in the the end of june and then you're still kind of pushing it to get a triple zero bean to make it before the frost and the state's probably gonna go, oh, you probably got some stuff that's in North Dakota, I doubt you're gonna get into a two, probably a late one, you know, yep. mid to late one, something like that.
2: Mm-hmm. Now where, where are you where are y'all based? Where you where y'all live? Opposite just, corners of the state. Yeah, that's yep. what I thought. Yep. I've been listening to your podcast just just to kind of get an idea how crazy you were. <laughs> Did we how,
1: how were we on the crazy spectrum? <laughs> I, I don't know what the Mississippi scale is, but <laughs> from North Dakota, I, I'm, a, I'm in the northeast corner. I'm up okay. by uh, Devil's Lake. So if, if anybody heard about waterfowling or uh, fishing, that's kind of the, we're the largest natural lake in uh, Devil's Lake. So I'm kind of in the northeast corner. Um, You know, I go 90 miles east. I'm in Minnesota. I go about 55 miles north. I'm in Canada. Sure. So, yeah, yeah where, it's, uh,
0: yeah. where I'm in the southwest, 60 miles, I hit Montana, and if I go well about that south, I'm in South Dakota. So it's uh, yeah, if, just total, total if I drive, uh, different areas.
2: If I drive three and a half hours south and west, I'm in. I'm basically in New Orleans. Gotcha. If I, if I drive three hours north and west. I'm well three hours by three hours. I'm I'm fixing across the bridge at West Memphis, Arkansas. So I'm kind of in the in the central north central part of Mississippi. Okay. So <laughs> I grew, but I grew up about 15 minutes from the Mississippi River and smack dab in the middle of the delta. So what is the de- what is the delta? delta? Okay, if you were in Tunica, you were in the northern part of the delta. Okay. Highway 61. You were right on Highway 61. If you hit 61 and drive south, you're driving right through the center. You're cutting the delta in two from east to west, all the way down. If you if you ever you ever heard of, you know where the Peabody is in Memphis? It's a fun. hotel. It's an old hotel. It's an old hotel in Memphis. The old farmers always said that the the delta started at the, the Peabody lobby bar and ended on Catfish Row in Pittsburgh, Mississippi, which is a straight shot down on uh, sixty one. Okay. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of history in Mississippi Delta. It's, Yes. Yeah, and that's that's part of the fun. I
1: mean, I always have interest in, uh, I like to travel, go places, uh, and part of that is uh, to the lay of the land, the agriculture that happens there, the history that goes along with that, and then, of course, you wrap it up with uh,
2: primarily food. Well, there's but, a lot of good food down through there. I know. That's, a lot of good Probably my favorite part about traveling is all the food. If you if, if you come if you come down here, let me know. We'll I'll, I'll show you some. I will go to some places with mm, some good food. Ah, that's okay. I have friends that own restaurants down there, so we can hit them up. Oh, really? I mean, right down here right now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so so the Mississippi Delta that that makes up how much of Mississippi's agriculture? So I mean, that's only just a narrow area of. As
2: far as, as far as agronomic row crop production,
0: yeah,
2: I'd probably say 70, 75%. Okay, so it's that's, a lot.
0: that's that's the bulk of the row crop. Yeah, it's,
2: it's, it's, yeah, from from the Tennessee line all the way just north of Vicksburg, which is a pretty good, pretty good waste. And you got all kind of different soil soil types. I mean you got sandy, lomas, uh we call, you know, cotton dirt. And you got heavy, heavy crater style. When it dries, you break a leg in type soil. I mean it's it's the soil range is incredible when you go over there. But if you drive, I mean if you drive south and from Tunica, there's a lot of rice production there. It's a lot of soybean production. There's some there's some cotton production there. you get in you get about thirty minutes south of, of tunica and you come into the heart of rice country. That's where the that's where it's you know, that's the bulk of the rice produce, production in Mississippi, and it's right on sixty-one. You'll see it both sides of the highway. Hmm. So that's we is- probably aren't real used to is, is 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 rice, and no, we, not at all. We, we probably have somewhere around this year. We'll probably have somewhere around ninety thousand acres total, something like that. We usually from eighty-five to one hundred ten. On total rice acres from the so, state.
0: So rice, then, is that grown? It is that really grown like a commodity crop, like corn and soybeans, like where guys grow it on the open market and they could sell it to an elevator? Or is that something? When I hear ninety thousand acres, it sounds more like a specialty crop where you're almost uh, there's there's specialty processors. It's a different processing facility.
2: You contract with those processors. I mean, how does that some of them do that some do that because I, one of my growers does uh, produce for said company uh certain varieties but some of them do sell to like uh grain terminals okay and they go to the so, you know it's it's so it's it's traded just like any other crop
0: okay yeah I, I was just thinking of one where the the acres aren't huge uh dry edible beans for us we've yeah. got pinto beans black beans navy beans
2: pinks yeah. yellows. Yeah. Oh, They're yeah. probably contracted with a company.
0: Yeah, it's always contracted with a company. Right.
2: Yep. And some of these rice producers do the same kind of thing. Like, said company wants a this variety for their box of instant rice. Okay. So they contract it. For, I got one grower that specifically does that kind of stuff. Okay. And guys, he fit that mold. So he grows these two varieties that fit that market. Hmm. It's like malt.
0: Right. Kind of
1: like, or bar- yeah, like barley. Barley is too yeah, yeah. What is, uh, Greg, what is, uh, how do you, what's a typical um, rice acre growing season like? Walk, walk me through that. When did, how does that all transpire? Well, they've,
2: been, they've been planting now for about three weeks to a month. They started slow, but we've had a lot of rain. So, uh, we're probably getting close to getting finished planting. So, first thing, and then they're going to go out there and depends on whether you've got your, your land uh leveled or not when i say leveled it's probably on a one to two percent grade so you can at least get the water off one end those guys are going to pull straight levees and just have paddocks within the field you, you got what i'm saying yep. mm-hmm. so they're they're gonna as soon as that's planted and they get the levees pulled and everything's out there they're going to flush that field after well they're going to spray it they're going to put out their pretty much then they're going to flush it they're going to get that rice up they're going to fertilize Uh and you know, depending on the rice variety, we we still have diseases we have to look for. We have uh, we have weeds that are very very important that we have to keep out. Um, of course, the water is there for weed control for the most part. Okay. Um, uh, but you know, just maintaining the water depth. You know, and just maintaining maintaining your water, keeping the fertility up. So the water you know,
0: it- for the most part is. Just for the weed control? Or I, I imagine for the initial germination too?
2: Yeah, well that's what it when I said the they flush it, flush it. Yeah, they flushed it. The water goes out the other end. They're probably gonna catch it and bring it back out. So they got a tail ditch and they're gonna relift it back into the field after that rice comes up to a certain height. So then they're gonna flush that field again. And they're gonna probably keep they're gonna keep that water on that field until it's and until it heads out. So where does the fertilization part how does that how is that done by air aerially aerial. yeah and it used to used to back in the day i had i was i was one of those uh guys that marked so i had to take showers and fertilizer
0: (laughs) (laughs) so so is it constantly foliar applying like in incremental yes yeah so you're you're just spreading it into the water essentially
2: and okay yeah yeah and you know, just to you know, bring up some. I have seen guys, and my dad was one of them. He would do stuff like uh, we had some herbicides that you couldn't spray next to a catfish pond, and so you got a rice field that's right next to a catfish pond. So dad would set the jug by the by the well head, and he would calibrate the drips of the herbicide into the water going out into the field. So no no sprayer at all. It's just calibrating the drip coming out of the the uh, container. <laughs> you, understand, you understand what i'm saying yeah so yeah. Is, your dad a,
1: is your dad a moonshiner too or what here he, he would try
2: anything he, i wish I was, he was something he, he would try just about anything
0: i believe that drip method out of the jug is still used for uh i don't know how everyone calibrates it i think that's an art <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah
0: but we right. it, it gets done for seed treatment
2: yeah but but you it's couldn't, you couldn't spray around a catfish pond sure aerially. so the only way around that was to think outside the box so he did so he set up a platform above the wellhead pumping the water in and he calibrated that drip coming into the and spread that herbicide over across that field so when you say There's a way to
1: get it out When you say catfish pond is that is that agriculture too then there
2: yeah we have well it used to be pretty large um, Industry in Mississippi has kind of fell off, but we still have several catfish farms in the in the delta and on the on the uh, west on the east side of the state. We still have several, but there's there's still a few. But it used to be a huge industry in Mississippi.
0: So is that people's taste for for fish has just dwindled, or what is what's that? Yeah, or
2: I don't know what happened. It's just kind of it's just kind of fell off. It used to be a big deal. We used to have catfish uh, facility production or facilities all over the delta. I, I lived in a town that had one within about you know half a mile of my house. But it's been shut down for twenty five, thirty years now. Mm. But there's still two big ones in the delta, one in kind of north central and one kind of south central. That's, so, that'd be one.
1: That'd be one of the things on my list when I travel that I would try because you hear yeah. you, you just hear a lot about it. Yeah, and. I mean, if you're in my market up here, it's generally walleyes. Your, your my thing. But when you hear about traveling to the south, catfish gets brought up a lot. It's like, oh, you gotta, you gotta try this.
2: And Mississippi State University still has a catfish research program. So, okay, in the Delta.
0: Yeah, it's something I've I've only ever heard of. It'd be very interesting to see. So when it, when it comes to rice again, is, is there? A, I mean, you, you're probably diseases your. Outside of weeds is your biggest issue, but uh, what kind of rotation is, is every is every crop rotate with rice and, and how often can uh, you go back to rice you know, in the same field?
2: You know, historically in Mississippi, soybeans was that crop. It was it was rotated into the soybeans for a couple of years and then go back to rice. Okay, but yeah, yeah, and and you know with commodity prices of soybeans, you know a lot there's of course we have way more soybean acres than any crop. We usually bump around two and a half million acres of soybeans in the state. And that's, yeah, it's probably 2.2 right now, I think is probably the projected goal in Mississippi right now. So you only have, you'll have less than a hundred thousand acres of rice. We'll have somewhere around 500,000 acres of cotton and probably six, 700 acres of corn. And, and you mentioned sweet potatoes. And and I'd like to talk about sweet potatoes a little bit because I want to, I want to give a punch out for these, my growers. We only usually have about 20, anywhere from 25 to 30,000 acres of sweet potatoes. That's
0: quite a bit of sweet potatoes.
2: That's a lot of sweet potatoes. And it's one region in Mississippi. Now we have, we have one grower that's kind of outside the norm and he's in the Delta, but uh, we have one and it's, Pretty much along one highway, Highway Eight is Sweet Potato Central in in the hills. I mean, it's both sides of the highway you'll see sweet potato production. Okay, and, and it's something that I've been—I didn't grow up around it, but since I've been doing crop certification, I have to—I I work with some sweet potato growers that are. It's a totally different breed of uh, farmer in my mind. It's they're no, they're they're not the same as a regular soybean guy or a cotton guy. They're totally different course they're de- dealing with a, a very hack amount a very high value crop. Right. Yeah. It's pretty intense. So you got you got folks, you know, during planting and harvest, it's it's like ants running across the field. I mean it's just there it's everywhere. It's intense. So is a sweet sweet potato is that
1: preferred over just a regular potato in that's a totally different potato. But is it is it is that the preferred I mean uh, if you're in Mississippi and you are sitting down to eat, is that are you getting sweet potato? No, is, no. no.
2: It's, okay, you know, it's like my wife. She she loves sweet potatoes. Of course, a sweet potato is what it is. It's kind of it's kind of the candy of potatoes. You know, it's they're totally different. I'm not. I don't even eat sweet potatoes. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> but my wife will go through two boxes of sweet potatoes in a in a in a winter. And we've got several different varieties. we got the traditional orange, or we've got whites and purples, you know, different colored uh, meat, sweet potatoes. Of course, everybody wants the traditional orange, meat, and sweet potato. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you get, you got to have your regular. I I prefer, like, if I see purple, or I have seen – I've rarely seen the purple, but when it's there, I'll grab it. And I've seen the white a little more, but, yeah, it's almost always,
1: always I've got, that I've orange, got, that
0: yellow.
2: I'm, I'm, I got
1: a box sitting right behind me. It's almost a, uh, boy, if I run into it, it's a Thanksgiving deal. You know, it's it's kind of a, yeah. a specific yep. time of the year. Right. That's kind of where, it,
2: that's the way it is here. You know, but between uh, mid-October to 1st of January, and then it just kind of drops off. As far as people wanting sweet potatoes on a regular basis you know then they want it again around and Thanksgiving is the big time. everybody wants sweet potatoes at that time yeah it's always so
0: interesting like for us in our household I bet you we have sweet potatoes once a week really yeah they' they're, they're always stocked in the grocery shelves so I I'm not sure what region they come from but I'm sure it's I'm sure it's the south or the east
2: well it's uh, there is North Carolina grows a, a lot of sweet potatoes. Louisiana grows quite a bit. Uh, there's some in California. Eh? Hawaii has sweet potatoes. But uh, as far as the largest producer of sweet potatoes in the contiguous uh, U.S., it's North Carolina. Mm. North Carolina has a you know so you got a good chance of having North Carolina sweet potatoes. A better chance than having Mississippi because I mean, like I said, we've got we've got less than thirty thousand acres, and I can probably name just about every farmer. What is a typical sweet potato yield? 900, 1,200 pounds an acre. Oh, wow. Something about, like that.
1: How about rice? Going back to rice, what's the type of yield there? Let's see, well, it's
2: 220. Oh, gotcha. so they can,
0: they can produce quite a bit on that.
2: And Purdue, you know, uh, and you talk, we want to talk yields. Cotton uh, on a good year, you'll have two and a half, two and a half bales. On average, you know, I, of course, you got some growers that grow three, three and a half, even four-bale. Bell. Four-bale bell cotton It's is huge. And that's, that field is white. So, and I don't know what kind of soil, what kind, what kind of soybean yields do y'all see?
0: That, that varies. Uh, but I would say 25 at the low end, yeah. a bad year on a bad soil up to mid-50s
1: on good years, good soils. Okay. You'll, have, you'll have some stuff in some, in some areas where you'll push
2: mid-60s to 70. Okay, you know? so y'all are not totally off from where we are, but, I mean, I have seen some varieties, bought, well, you know, 95, but that's a rare strip trial or something, but on average, you know, state average usually runs around 50, 52. Okay. Something like that. But I used to do soybean variety trials across the state, so I saw a lot of different types. And, and um, uh, yielders i've seen some pretty good yielders but you had to hit a perfect timing for those to do that biggest thing i saw was uh difference
1: is that when you the further south you went it, things were more determinant yeah and uh, we're we're very indeterminate right and i'm i'm 6-4 and i've walked into soybean fields in areas south of here that are chest high
2: and just even i mean yeah. unbelievable how Tabletop, I love I love seeing that. Yeah, yeah. So, well. so, back on this
0: sweet potato topic, I I don't want to finish with where we ended on that. Right. <laughs> I, I still ahead. have more interest because you said it, it's like a different breed of farmer. Uh, so I imagine it sounds like there's a lot of hand labor, manual labor that's involved. You see right. a lot of a lot of people running back and forth so for, for that's, that's so for the harvest part of it.
2: For the harvest part of it, for for the planting too. So there's a couple of different ways to approach planting. So if you've got seed potatoes from last year, so you got a box of seed potatoes, so you're going to bed those potatoes into a into a tall bed in a pile in a row. So each one of those are going to have eyes on it, so they're going to shoot those shoots out the soil. So you're going to go in there and cut those off and move those across the field. You see what I'm getting? It's labor-intensive. It's right. a lot.
0: So do you have to do it like... Like regular potatoes when you're cutting for the eyepieces. Like here in North Dakota, we have uh we have some pretty strong regular potato uh, I, I wouldn't say it's uh, there are some russet Burbank in different areas. We have production spread across the state, but there's one area in the north far northeastern part of the state that has an extreme rich history, uh, from like Grafton up to Hoople, uh where Sarah Lovis is from is is big potato country and there's a lot of reds that are up there, a lot of table stock type potatoes, and they're always cutting seed and letting it dry, but they can do everything mechanically. This this is a much different process, it sounds like.
2: Well, my, my sweet potato is actually an apple now. We're a totally different. You know, it's a root crop, but it's not a potato in what you're talking about. See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we, and, um, So what I deal with is, so we have a foundation program, with Mississippi State University, that grows and makes sure that those slips are virus tested so we don't have transmit viruses in the field from lab to the greenhouse. So those slips go to the greenhouse, and they start growing. So you get a table that you've stuck those uh, sprigs in, slips, and those grow. You cut them so you're expanding into the greenhouse, making that more and more into the greenhouse. So eventually, you fill up the greenhouse, and now we're going to the field. But that's the foundation program. Now, if you're dealing with a box of seed potatoes, those would be, I would consider those G2s, year two. So, and those came off of foundation slips. So if you got G2 sweet potatoes, you're putting in uh, a bed. Those are the ones you're going to the field and bedding and cutting and moving those slips across the field. There's so many different aspects that's going on. <laughs> right. It's a lot.
0: So, so, uh, is there a different region in Mississippi that's growing the actual seed stock for, for sweet potatoes? I've got,
2: I've got three growers that our goal is to be able to provide for, for most of our growers those those G2 box potatoes for next year. So that's our goal is to be able to eventually be able, instead of bringing boxes of potatoes, sweet potatoes from North Carolina as seed taters, into this state and the risk of bringing viruses from other states. I'm not pointing fingers. North Carolina's got a great program. In fact, my counterpart in North Carolina, I'm real good friends with him. We talk about this stuff all the time. but And we agree, you know, it's moving sweet potatoes from one state to another. And we do have a couple of things that, just like the guava nematode, has become a, a serious problem in, in in areas with sweet potatoes. So, But you can't tell... So you got those sweet potatoes in storage, but well, it takes months to be able to, to tell if those sweet potatoes have been infected. Once those sweet potatoes shrink, you start seeing the welts on the potatoes. But in storage, you may not even see it, but by the time they get here, you will. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a problem. Anyway, that's sweet potatoes. So it's
0: such a different crop from regular potatoes, but it sounds like the seed production, there's so much similarity. Yeah. To to the process on, on regular potatoes. I,
2: North Dakota that's why, and that—that's why I would love to go see see that. You know, I, I follow folks on Twitter like Nick Cloe, and you yeah, know yeah. those guys. Yeah, i, I I've, I've, You know, I'd love to come hang out with you. You know, just to see see he he his planting method is totally different than what we're doing. About, yeah, he's uh, he's, cutting those, he's cutting he's those potatoes. We don't we're not doing that. We're just bedding a bunch of potatoes.
0: Oh yeah, and see what you see him doing is yeah that's that's what. Our potato production
2: is like, yep. Yeah, that's totally, it's different in my mind, you know, but I see this. I don't see that in the production standpoint. So it's kind of cool to me. I'd love to see that actual. I spent a summer working with sea uh, Potatoes as a scout.
1: So you had your mini tubers, your G1s, your G2s. Uh, you had to watch out for X and Y virus. You would rogue things out. Uh, you had to be very concerned with uh, aphids, anything that could vector. Vector. Foods, yep, yep, things like that. So it didn't take me long to appreciate the potato that was on my plate, but i I got real tired of being in potatoes. <laughs> yeah, but it was a good it was a good experience because it was it was the intensity right. that that people bring to it that you realize okay, this is this is
2: a different animal. we totally. got, yep, it's like you know, and the, the guys I work with in sweet potatoes, even the researchers. You know, and I've got one one researcher that, you know, I I swear sometimes he calls me and he thinks the sweet potatoes is the only thing I deal with. I love him to death. I'm like, I'm dealing with 25 plus thousand acres of cotton. With sweet potatoes, I'm only dealing with a couple hundred acres. But his focus is sweet potatoes. Mine's not. But I still have to work with him some on sweet potatoes. But I can't all the time because I got 25 plus thousand acres of cotton.
0: So you have 25,000 acres of seed cotton.
2: Seed got production,
0: right so right okay now now we have to kind of shift a little bit and learn a little bit about seed production for cotton I just I just, well, want, to, I just want, want to know me? production yeah. of cotton period that's what I want to know True. I, yeah maybe whole... maybe make that easier and just talk <laughs> general cotton production I mean is that yeah I, I don't even know where you begin there I mean we talked about the picks we talked about how yeah you know cotton used to be 10 12 foot tall you know when yeah. you when you were a kid and and then the production practices got a lot more refined. The use of growth regulators to shorten and and increase growth. But uh,
2: yeah, we call that standing on it when we when we say using a growth regulator. You got some varieties are over, um, near about overcome. You know, heavy growth applicator, growth or picks applications. So you literally have to quote stand on it to keep it from. From uh, really, really growing and getting those nodes too far out. When I say nodes too far out, you don't want you don't want your nodes to be further than three fingers between each other. That's you want to stack those nodes instead of getting them out, you know, wide. So we're stacking nodes within three fingers. Okay. Anything else? Anything else? You're wasting energy. You know, you, you want to, you know, basically standing on that plant. What's uh, what's fertility programs like? uh with cotton or rotation and things like that uh well i mean our growers rotate you know corn and uh soybean they'll go they'll go they can go corn cotton soybeans back you know something like that you know something so um the probably the main fertility requirements you gotta have your potash right you gotta have you know boron is important for cotton production nitrogen production nitrogen course we're going to side dress it at least twice a year and it depending on what soil you're on how much you're going to put out but uh probably the two main things of potash and boron mm, that cool. is something i learned today right there yeah. Th- those two are critical you know you, you know you see you'll see top dressing potash you see wagons going out across the field because they got behind they didn't get their potash out before they
1: planted there so if i'm so if i'm a crop consultant and i am in uh Dealing with cotton, how much time am I spending in cotton in a summer
2: growing season? Oh man. If you're a cotton consultant during the growing season, in what year? You know, in, in 1985, you were in that field twice a year, twice a week. In 2020, you probably, you know, once a you know, past let's see, it, it depends on whether you've got your thrips controlled, you got your, your your early season pester controlled, you got that. You got the right seed treatment, so you got the right thing going into the plant that you're keeping your thrips down. Probably once a week, okay. especially after about uh, third, fourth true leaf, then you start worrying about things like plant bugs, and those are can be really, really disastrous. Plant bugs in in comparison to the corn and soybean, then a lot more
0: intensive as far as just management goes far as
2: management goes yes it can be
0: right depending on what the year hands you is it a big insect year right you know
2: and i've I've seen some horrid horrid bullworm years you know back in the late 90s we had some horrid years i think it was 98 something like that we had we had a lot of we had a lot of uh bullworm problems but so depending on the year you know we we you know having a hard winter is can can be good for us
1: so as okay. far as what's kind of a hard what's summer. a hard winter. Yeah, what is Come a hard for
2: Mississippi? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we don't have those kind of winters, but you mm-hmm. know, I do like to have some cold temperatures to where we can maybe slow down some insects, you know, in the spring. At least slow slow emergence and where we don't have maybe, you know, where you might have three generations of said insect, we only have two. So that would be that's a plus in itself. So
1: uh cotton? That's traded. I mean, you got you yes. got a, a, a certain herbicide trait in that crop yep. primarily.
2: Yeah, we have we have uh, cotton. Okay, so that is that is out there. You know, we have uh, bogard. You know, that's the lepidopterous stuff. Um, yeah, we have. You know, traditionally, we had round We had Roundup Ready. Ones and twos, and, you know, that was that was some of the early development back in the, you know, 96, 97, 98. When we started, that was one of the crops that was released with the Roundup Ready back in the late 90s. So, what like, about
0: insects and resistance yeah, just, issues? Uh, you know, you you got Iowa and southern Minnesota that that deal with corn rootworm that have overcome yeah. uh, inserted traits. Uh, I don't know if there's, I'm sure there's some European corn borer resistance too i know that's where the biggest fear is but uh i i mean when you're talking two and three generations in a growing season yeah. for an insect i'm sure you're dealing with some type of yeah. resistance and traded yeah bulls, yeah bull traits
2: yeah
0: yeah we are we're dealing with
2: it we're dealing so, with some of that
0: so it's so it's coming back around do you, you have to yeah conventionally it. treat and be watching right. and
2: yeah exactly because that's why, you know, I prefaced everything earlier when I said I'm kind of the old school kind of guy when I'm, not you know, we're getting too far away from conventional ideas. and You know, we're, we've lost that knowledge. I, I firmly believe that we are, you know, some of my college professors that have left this world, you know, those that's those kind of that kind of knowledge we're losing. My dad, for one, lost him four years ago. So. Those those old school conventional type agronomic ideas are we're we're losing, and and I want everybody to be aware of that. I think I think that's an important point that people need to understand.
0: Well, right, and and uh, being a good steward of of traded technology is extremely important too. And and I'm not talking about the herbicide thing. I, I think I, I think yeah, I think I think we all stress on the herbicide thing a lot, but the the insect thing is
2: huge. It's big.
0: It, yeah, it, it's way bigger, and and I know how. Before it was refuge in a bag for the corn, for instance, because that's really the only insect traded.
2: We um, don't have that,
0: right? So you have to still grow refuge we're, acres.
2: We're in a cotton country. We're in cotton country, so we have to grow refuge acres. So we got twenty percent, you know, refuge within uh, a mile, mile and a half of each other.
0: Right, and and how many actually? Do a good job.
2: Me. I know. I know.
0: Right, right. But that, but that's that's kind of the overlaying message here is when you when you run into those <laughs> yeah. issues, it doesn't matter that's if it's. The
2: whole, look. Oh, that's you know. the whole myth. I mean, if we have to respect that. Mm-hmm. If we don't, we lose it.
0: Well, that's the issue, and in, in the corn growers that are dealing with the the insect resistance issues to certain rootworm traits, certain BT traits, they understand that now. And, and yet they have this refuge in a bag piece now that will change things and and can kind of help overcome that but it really makes me lead to believe that it was the abuse of not being good and not being a good steward with the refuge acres in the past that have kind ex- of led to some of those issues
2: that's exactly right because we've, we've, we' we've haven't respected it
0: yeah it's something you got to take serious and and nobody likes to block up twenty acres or twenty percent of their acres
2: in something right. that
0: they know they can't produce the and same.
2: I, I, it's too we've only got there's only this ceiling of of new chemistries out there that we can even use. There's not what what we're gonna do. You don't have endless amount of types of chemistries that you can use in a said situation. There's they're not I mean surely they might be developing something, but we may not see that for fifteen years. So we only have what we've got. We have to treat what we have with respect and we're losing we're losing that i mean just you go back around already we're losing we're losing we're losing the battle with that and i'm i will say this again eventually you're going to lose the battle with ox and herbicides
0: oh we've already seen some of it see uh, <laughs> yeah didn't take long <laughs> no
2: going, but, we, it's, but it's we've
0: always out. used ox and herbicides here so it's... you know there are a lot of prescription programs available these days but remember, not all of these programs and services are made equal. I would agree. Some are using very basic information that doesn't
1: always represent actual field variability. I know of a more complex and robust software that can achieve accurate representation of productivity zones for your field. Yeah, complex and robust. Didn't you date a girl like that once? Hey, I'm talking about a software that can handle a complex and robust situation like the spring we're having right now. Oh, my bad. What software would that be? That software would be ADMS from GK Technology.
0: Oh, yeah, I knew that. It's the egg data mapping solution. Make sure to
1: check them out at www.gktechinc.com to learn more. Ask for Darren, Kelly, Cheryl, or Sarah,
0: I think we can agree that every grower and every agronomist is doing their best to get the most out of their land and to do so in a
1: way that makes sense for the budget and the soil. And given some of the supply chain shortages we're dealing with this year, it's even more important.
0: You know what's a good tool for the job? Farm QA. That's short for Digital Tools for Agronomy. Tools like scouting, treatment recommendations, and fertility management, just to name a few. The field information
1: that you're able to track with FarmQA will be super helpful in making treatment decisions and crop adjustments this spring. Right, you can see whether a
0: particular field has a history of problems. You can look back and see how treatments have affected things like standability in the past and make good choices. My mom always told me to make good choices. It's a good time to make a wise choice. So go visit farmqa.com and follow them on Twitter to learn more.
2: I'm going to go back to to com- conventional practices in, in cotton. Back when we had, you know, I don't know if you follow me on Twitter. I started putting some things about bow weevil because I was messing with Bridget, telling her, you know, this is what a bow weevil is. <laughs> okay, well, that when we had bow weevil, we had we had to. This was this you had to do this, or you were going to develop some kind of tolerance to that said insecticide. So we had three to four insecticides we would spray every three days. So we'd rotate those insecticides to keep that insect from being tolerant to resistant of that said chemical chemistry. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. That's the same thing we're talking about now. We right. We're trying to make that insect which was could blow up to astronomical proportions with three or four insecticides that we had to respect for years in a row. So now... Yeah. It's the same idea. Our,
1: our area, if we get the right year, we're going to have, uh, depending on the year, but uh, say we've got moisture around the 4th of July, we're going to see a, 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 quite a bit of fungicide. It's going to go on wheat for head scab. It's going to go on canola for white mold, dry beans for white mold. There's going to be even some soybeans for white mold. Not that big of a corn market for fungicide. What's, your, what's, the, what's the fungicide perspective down there? Because it's, it sounds like insecticide's a big thing, particularly yeah. in, in the cotton piece. I'd like to know kind of what is a normal insecticide type of year, but also what's, what's fungicide use like in Mississippi?
2: Fungicide use for cotton production is not much. We're focusing mainly on weeds and insects. So you might trigger three to five sprays on insects in a year. Whereas mm-hmm. when we're talking about soy, uh, some growers will do it, some won't. I'd like to. Well, actually, a lot of growers won't, and they still don't see the value in it. I guess when soybean prices go up, you know more value is put into the, the crop. But uh, for years, I'd kind of like to push it. You know, see a farm use r R three fungicide to control stuff like cercospora. You know, frog eyes, uh, saccharosperum blight. But if in seed production, um, I'm not I'm not scared to put out a second, like a half four and a half to five, just to maintain because we have purple stain, which is saccharosperum blight. You get our get saying, get the stain on and- saying to keep that right So keep that at a minimum for seed production. So you put out a second application just so you can. Hopefully, maintain some seed quality. But most farmers in the state, they're they're not focusing too much on fungicide application, which I kind of wish they would kind of focus more on that because we are in a in more in kind of a hot, dry, to humid type climate. It shifts. You have a cool nights, you know, sixty five, and then you get to hundred degrees, and you've got humidity that. You know, hundred percent. You know, you feel like you can fly, float out of the field. Well, Fungicides or fungus or diseases thrive in that kind of stuff. Right. So, yes, I kind of, kind of recommend the farmer use at least, especially in soybeans, at least that one shot. You know, when I as far was... as as far as diseases in cotton, we've got a few. You know, angular leaf spot and but that you know. We've got varieties that are fairly fairly strong can overcome a lot of that. Now, but we do have spots like fusarium. And I have I have done some research on with fusarium and cotton. You know, you find your spot that has it, but and it usually stays there, you know, in the soil for several years.
0: It, it's just it's just so interesting place to place where where you hear is it insects, is it disease, is it both? Uh, it, you know, when you are talking about yeah. the boll weevil resistance management, having different modes of action, different types of insecticides every three days you're applying. I can
2: be something, but I can still smell those insecticides. (laughs) They're still.
0: (laughs) So the only, the only parallel I can think that we have that's close to that, that you mentioned earlier is you want to know just anything about sugar beet production for us. So we deal with Cicospora and sugar beet.
2: Yeah.
0: And it's not all of our, well, we deal with Cecospora in our entire sugar beet growing areas, but there are some areas that deal with it far worse than others, and they have to use a rotation of different modes of action. They have to be really good with with that for resistance management. And even at right. that, they can't keep on top of Cecospora. And right. it, to to the point where they're making four plus passes in a season trying to rotate to it, maybe it's just a triazole product. Maybe it's a strobe and a triazole. Then they're, yeah. then they're going to just like a, a, a tin. T- yeah, yeah, super tin is on there. So you're just trying to coat the leaf. Uh, you're you're yeah. doing something different all the time. And still they can't get on top of it.
2: Yeah. Well, Cercospora is a beast, can be. Mm-hmm. And there's so many different types of Cercospora.
0: And the one in Sugar Beets has always been a real tough issue for those guys. And they do have, uh, it's not a trait. I believe. I believe it's just a, a varietal thing, and they have some built-in tolerance that they're just starting to see new stuff. But it still requires you have to stack that with good resistance management practices right. In, right. in order to preserve Re- that trait because it's not a bulletproof thing.
2: Right, and respect that chemistry.
0: Right. Absolutely.
1: What is uh, what is going to happen in? And I don't know if it's even
2: labeled, but with the uh, clopyrifos – is that a product, or in cotton? Yeah, we've we've used it in cotton in the in in the past, but we're we're losing it. Uh, I've got a little bit here at the, at, the, at the house. <laughs> Just, but, uh, organophosphates as a whole, you know, that's not that's not used too much. Yeah, it's, okay. so the yeah, is one of those that we're we're losing. But it's it's all because of you know. Basically, pollinators, stuff like that. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I respect that. Yep. No, that's if true. It, if it makes things. It makes things difficult. But.
0: Right. It's it's a system that we have to coexist with. And-
2: All right. That's it. That's the point right there. Yep.
0: We have, right. we have to work with. Right. And you have to work with it, and it has to turn into a deal where if you can't respect it, you lose it, and, right. and that's kind of regulatory wise where it went. Yep. So yep. We just kind of we lost it. And it's an unfortunate deal because it was uh again back to sugar beet production. It was actually used as an important seed treatment.
2: Right. In, yeah. In yeah. It beet. was. It was. Right. It was used as seed treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Purefice has been around a long time.
0: Yeah, we still have been. I believe a lot of the sugar beet seed that uh, is out there currently for this season is treated with.
2: Yeah.
0: I mean that's that's how big of a deal it was. It it was a very common yeah. thing and. We used it a lot for soybean aphid and spider mite.
2: Yep, it, it was yep. used it all the time. Had spectrum. Spectrum. It, it was a bit a very broad spectrum mm-hmm. of, of things it would control for sure. But we have to look at other things. So I'm listening to you, and I got two
1: highways I need to travel. Apparently, when I go to Mississippi, one is Highway 61.
2: Yes, and the other and one you is you Highway. Get 6. there, you, you have to call me now. You have to oh, call. Okay. Have to let me know okay. 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 Well, I, That's I absolutely must. Yes. yes. And, sure. and highway
1: eight. Right?
2: Yes. That's it. Yeah. 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 And, uh, so, and uh, highway 8, highway eight, you, you'll drive when you drive South on 61, you cross highway eight in Cleveland. So you can actually turn, turn left and go straight across to sweet potato country or keep South and go through the rest of the Delta. Oh, I got to make a choice. <laughs> yeah. Are <laughs> you just going to have to spend a few days? Is all you, is this,
1: is this? Oh yeah. No, that's, that's, uh, yeah, when you go someplace, there, there's, you, you got to find people that know what, where to go, right? Right. So when I come down, I like to see things. Uh, I like the suggestions. Uh, what are some historical things that
2: I need to see when I go to Mississippi? Well, some of the historical things are actually places to go eat. But uh, there wow. are a few other road markets that you have to stop and see, of course. But some of the historical places, yes, there are actual places to stop and eat.
1: Now we're talking
2: yes, <laughs> so let's
1: jump into that food thing what is what is it that uh, if you come to your state that I need to put on my uh we started a list in our family the hundred things you need to try before you die so what is what is on the Mississippi slate for my uh, my palate?
2: well, let's say if you're coming down sixty one. You're going to stop in Clarksdale. Or you're going to eat at Abe's Barbecue. You probably need to go to Ground Zero. Uh, so come on down, 61. You've got to go to – there's a couple of Italian restaurants in Cleveland that you have to stop and eat at. And, of course, you need to drive through Delta State University. And whether or not you want to go see the Mississippi River, you know, there's you can go to Moon Lake. There's a really nice rest, really, really good place to eat there. Um, but we'll have to go to Greendale and go to Doe's Steakhouse, and uh, they're friends of mine, old friends of mine. You will be treated like kings if you go there. You'll be my friend. You'll be treated like kings.
0: <laughs> See that notebook whipping
1: out there? <laughs> it is. I got it right here. I'm not right. No, I'm,
2: yeah. so you, you go there, and you tell the signals that, of course, I hopefully I would be with you with we'll the signals. That, well, I'm you know, not here I'm not doing this on my own, friend. I have the tour guide. Yeah. <laughs> So so you head south and you go rolling forward, you got to you got to get a chokes burger and then when you get to uh, Vicksburg you're gonna get uh, well I'm, you need to go all the way to Natchez really to get a whole because you got to go to Fat Mama's Tamales
0: <laughs> Fat Mama's Tamales <laughs> all
2: right <laughs> but yeah this you got is- you got to go to you got cut a crop back across the to Greenwood and eat Crystal Grill that's a, that's an old Old gray old restaurant there. But yeah, there's there's plenty to do. And but there's a whole lot of vast open nothing in the Delta too now. So there's a whole lot of ag going on between everything I just said. A whole lot of
0: that that's okay yeah. for somebody that comes from North Dakota that's an agronomist. Right. If you guess what happens when you if, drive to North Dakota? It's all ag. It's
2: all <laughs> egg.
1: You're driving well, you're south still- and you're looking left and right. That's all you do. You don't even you're not even your co-pilot is is actually telling you where to drive. You, you're spending too much time looking off the left window, the front windshield, and the that's, right window. That's Highway 61.
2: <laughs> it's highway. You're going to see anything from you're going to see rice and soybeans, corn, cotton. There's there's a couple of side farms, but you're, you're going to see all agronomic activity all the way down from the boot from the, from the bottom of the hills all the way to the Mississippi River levee. And when you're on 61, you're you're within, you know. Sometimes you're within a half, well, a mile or two from the levee, maybe up to six miles to the levee. But you're, you got to go. You got to go see the river too. So, yep. And go to the Benoit Outing Club. I have to take you in there. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like more than a week already. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's at least at least a week because it's it's a pretty large loop, and you I'm might uh, still gain weight when you you go with me. Oh, well, that's no problem. I, I'm I'm sure the heat and humidity is going to well, take us. i me, me say, this. If you go, if you go to those, and he'll say no, I'm bringing your Porterhouse. That's what you'll have. How about uh, that's what that's what he brings me.
1: <laughs> how about state or uh, national parks? Because uh, something Kyle and his wife like to do too is to. Mm-hmm. Get out and see different things. Well, I tell uh, you,
2: on the on the uh, east side of the state, yeah. we got some really really nice parks. Yeah. From from JP at Minnetucha, Mango, um, all the way down to the Bloodsea, we got nice parks. There's not a whole lot of there's there's Leroy Percy Park in the middle of the delta where I kind of grew up going to, but that's that's pretty much the only park. But we got several. We got plenty of lakes. I was going to say any good bass so, fishing. Yes. Yes. Now yeah. we're talking my language. Here we go. <laughs> yes. In fact, I was I was on one of the lakes for two weeks ago, I the, and then I had me a dough stage. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now
2: we're talking. Awesome. Now it
0: sounds like it's a it's an agronomy trip for a little tourist, little food, and probably got to
2: bring a boat too. You do have to bring a boat. We got boats. Don't don't bring boats. We 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 got boats. There we go. I well, got a boat here in my couple
0: Perfect. So the other one I got we got to know about because it's happy hour is what about breweries? Are there are there go to breweries? High cotton brewing. There we go.
2: Oh, oh yes. Oh man. You picked the right beer for having <laughs> I, got, a, I got this for this. Oh man. This is a there there it's a brewery in Memphis. Now we have a brewery in Mississippi on the on the on the coast of Lazy Magnolia, and it's really good too. But I figured since since I was going to talk about possibly cotton, I wanted to have this one.
0: There's there's <laughs> nothing I enjoy more with the breweries that kind of embrace the agricultural side of things. Yes, yeah. There, there's nothing I enjoy more than that. It it makes me want to yeah. buy their craft beer.
2: Yeah, it's fun. Mm-hmm. High cotton.
1: Yeah, it's. How many times have you walked into a place? And you're going through, and the name sells it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's what that's what this one. That's what happened with this one. (laughs) Yeah. So so high
0: cotton sold you. How was the beer itself? It's
2: good. It's really good.
0: So so high cotton brewing. What what do they actually call the beer then?
2: This one is just a Scottish ale. It's an IPA. Okay. But it's high cotton brewing. Yeah. But they have several. They have several. Let's just. This is this is their flagship beer, I guess you could call it her. Okay. Sure. Number one. Scottish Ale. So yeah. good.
0: Scottish yep. Ale's are good.
2: Yep. But I was introduced to this by some friends that live just out of Memphis. They had, they had it in their fridge and I said, give me that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's always
1: good to go to different places, try different things uh, between the food, yeah. the drink, the hospitality the history, yep. the travel, the agriculture. So uh, I think that's the funnest part is uh, how quick some of those trips can feel because you're just taking in stuff. Yeah. And you say, oh, man, a week? I don't know if I can afford a week. And you go down there and you go, uh, a week was too short. I yep. needed I needed another 14 days easier, 10 days.
2: Yeah, a well, I, went, I went to Virginia Crop a couple of years ago and I took us on a beer tour they have a bunch of breweries up there and that was it, it, it's kind of overwhelming when you got a brewery every half a mile <laughs> oh <laughs> is that heaven it's virginia i Loaded us up on a bus and every i swear every you know it would get on get off get on get off you get out you have this little tasting room you go in there and good grief so you're, you're a little You've had a few by the time you get off the bus at the hotel. I think <laughs> <laughs>
1: lots of smiles. Everybody was smiling.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, everyone's having a good time on a tour like that.
2: Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, I, I like that. Kind of, I like that kind of stuff, especially pot beers. I think it's cool. Yeah, I agree.
0: Oh yeah, and the podcast is only giving us an excuse to try something different all the time. <laughs> hey, yeah. <laughs> So I'm always, always on the hunt for something different, and and I love it Ooh. when we talk to someone that's from totally out of our area, and then you yeah. find something like High Cotton Brewing, that's awesome.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, like I said I, I picked this up just for this. I said I'm, if I'm going to talk some cotton, I'm going to get me a High
0: Cotton. <laughs> well, that's awesome. We appreciate that. That is more than fitting. Yeah. Unfortunately, I, I, can't, I, I can't find agriculturally themed beers that often for me. No. So, uh, I, I. What pom- are you drinking? I found one from Legintus Brewing. So they craft beer, but they sell it everywhere. I know you can find it where you're at too. It was just, it's called Hazy Wonder. So It was a mm-hmm. Hazy IPA, but, you know, if you listen to any of these or everyone that does listen know I like Hazy IPAs. So naturally it was like, hey, I haven't had that before. Let me <laughs> grab this. And go There's a bunch of them. And, and really good. Really, really good. And, you know, for a 6%, I think... Uh, our, our standard unit of measurement, so I don't know how many of the podcasts you listen to of ours, but we always have the bushlight equivalent way to standardize how strong a yep. beer could be.
2: Well, this one's five and a half. We're kind of on the same ballpark then. Yeah. What's what's yeah,
1: Jason? I just, I had, uh, so I was dealing with flooding, and so mm-hmm. I just picked up uh, a bunch of Goose Island IPA, okay. right? Because I didn't know if I was going to get back to town, which now the water's gone down. So mine is at, mine's at 59 uh, so that is a, a 1.43 BLE astronomy rad. Just so you know, and, <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, yeah, it's been it's been a, a good beer. But uh, I had it for the last podcast too because I was going to make sure that I if I couldn't get to town, well then I was covered. So yeah, right,
0: cool. No, that's that's probably my my favorite part about this is the obviously you, you get to have a drink, you get to talk about. Some fun things you pick out there, but such the the regional differences in, yeah. in different agriculture, and we we really appreciate you, Greg, coming on and talking to us on the podcast. I think uh, this this has been wonderful. I mean, we've never had anyone on to talk about cotton or rice or sweet potatoes, so that's that's huge for us. Just just to learn something totally different, and then even if it's the soybean maturity right. groups, the the late maturity corn, that's uh, it's it's all very different from us and uh, just anywhere close to us. So it's, so it's very cool. Um, You know, one, one thing we always do towards the end too, is I know we found you on Twitter and is that the one place we can find you on social media?
2: I don't, I don't reach out too far on anything else. Twitter is mainly the the thing that I use. So, and that's where I found everything that that I've been interested in so far. So I'm not into to branching out and doing any kind of TikTok. So you won't be seeing me out there dancing or <laughs> anything, you know. Not even in a cotton field, no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we get enough high well, cotton. I'll, in I'll you say you this: ever. high no. cotton. Come on, let's get <laughs> some high
2: cotton. You're not going to see that. Um, no, that's Twitter's. Twitter's mainly the thing that I use, and I, you know, that's that's where I learn all my other stuff outside of where I am.
0: So, if people want to follow you on Twitter. What What's your handle again?
2: SG Flint.
0: SG Flint. I
2: think. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yep. So, so there you heard it, everyone. If you want to follow Greg Flint on, at, on Twitter, at SG Flint. At, at Flint.
2: Yep. I'm not going to say that I'm really interesting, but uh, you might see some good retweets. Well, and, and one place
0: to, where we can really pick up on your personality and, and just fun conversation is yeah. every Friday from 1130 to, 1130 12, to 1230. 1230 Central. I'm Bridget, usually on there. Bridget Riedel has her nooner, in. you are a frequent guest. and yes. And frequent, you know, just speak up and share and ask questions and talk. And uh, and that's how and we I, got to know you. Yeah. Yep.
2: And I, I will say this. Uh, and I, I don't know how how y'all take this, but I credit Bridget on bringing me out, kind of introducing me into this kind of stuff. I've never met the lady face to face, but I've talked to her plenty of times, but so she was the one that kind of got me to open up and talk a little bit, so she's the reason for my insanity now, I guess
1: <laughs> oh. The loop is closing in. (laughs) Yeah. We're figuring it out. Bridget is so good at that.
2: Bridget is. She's good. I appreciate Bridget. So, yes, I would probably send her some more rice at some point.
1: (laughs) Well, part of that is that uh, through a medium that, yeah, you pretty soon you get introduced to people. You hear somebody enough and – They talk about things and next thing you know, we decided this would be a great idea to have you on and talk to you and see what you do and where it's at. And I have uh, a high interest in seeing many uh, parts of the United States and I've only been in a very small part of Mississippi and haven't seen some of the things that I'd like to see. So the connections that you make, you never know how far
2: reaching they can be, you know, yeah, it's like if I was to come up your way, I'd want to reach out to you. You if you come and, down here. And you absolutely should.
0: Yeah, we I would be more than happy to show you around and show you what agriculture is like here, the places to eat, the things to check out. Be no hesitation do a Del-
1: on our end. Delta and Badlands uh exchange. There we go. <laughs> 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 we have some pretty country here.
0: We have we have farmland and then we have just the the yeah, it's uh. There's some amazing scenery in this state that I don't live very far away from.
2: Yeah, you do have, from what I hear, you do.
0: Yeah, it's it's a it's a cool state.
2: Well, I've been here, in Mississippi, for 48 years as of May 8th. <laughs>
1: that is uh, that's interesting, cause uh, and has it been? Have
2: you been an ag that whole period of time? I grew up, uh, seed technologist, agronomist, son. Okay. Uh, Yes, 've I've done everything from all cotton fields to clean out augers and seed elevators and loading trucks and weighing trucks and hauling seed cleaners to farms and I've done I've done all that so through and through it's in your
0: blood it's how you're raised
2: it, it's how I'm raised. Yeah. I've got I've got I've got I've got seed dust in my lungs you know that's you know, <laughs> I was born in it
0: well, that's something we all been, definitely have in common we've all just yeah. been raised that way. It's the, the the industry, the agriculture is just a part of who we are. Yeah. And it's so cool to talk yeah. to people that are from such a different agricultural area to learn that there's a lot of similarities, but there's a lot of differences.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, so I think with that, we'll, uh, we'll close out happy hour. You can hang on here, Greg, but uh, for everyone else listening, I think we're going to say cheers for this week and we will catch you next week on the agronomist happy hour.
1: Cheers. Thank mm-hmm. you.